Welcome back to the Understanding Urbanism podcast. I'm Dallas Rogers. This is the podcast that accompanies the book of the same name, Understanding Urbanism, which is edited by Dallas Rogers, that's me, Adrian Keane, Taran Alizahe, and Jacqueline Nelson. The book is published by Palgrove Macmillan, and it's really great to have you along. In this episode, we'll be talking about Chapter 2, Indigenous Cities. This chapter is written by Libby Porter, and I'm paraphrasing and quoting Libby in this episode. Hi, I'm Libby Porter. Uh, I'm an uninvited guest on Woiwurrung Boonwurrung lands, and uh, I am a researcher and educator at RMIT University at the Centre for Urban Research. But this podcast episode is my interpretation of Libby's work, so don't hold anything against her. All the errors are my own. The city is the place where we have rendered ourselves so unable to see land anymore that we it's really hard to recognise. And it's important to note that I recorded this episode on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation here in Sydney, Australia. The reason for that? will become clear as we move through the podcast. So my five key takeaways from this chapter are, first, number one, cities like Sydney are indigenous places, but this history has been written out of the urban studies literature. Two, there is an intrinsic link between the concept of indigeneity and colonisation. Three, colonisation is a process. It's a structure and it's a relation of power. It's not some historical moment or it's not only an historical moment. Four, despite the urbanisation of many Indigenous peoples around the world, Indigenous peoples have been largely overlooked in urban studies. And five, the relationship between land and property is key to understanding all of this. You know, we could think about it as Said, Edward Said once taught us that, you know, in the end, imperialism is all about land. It's all about territory. Um, and in the end, everything comes down to land. So at the heart of all of the dynamics of the settler colonial experience is land. So if that is, if we put that at the centre, that kind of struggle for territory, then we can start to think about how that works. Libby begins this chapter by noting that the historical origins of thousands of cities around the world lie in the dispossession and genocide of Indigenous peoples. And it's from many of these cities that we get mainstream urban scholarship. But here's the strange thing. This foundational dimension of urbanism is often missing from urban scholarship. So in the call to think about the city as an Indigenous place, Libby calls for a more truthful and accurate account of what cities actually are, how they came to be, and what work they did in securing colonial expansion and erasing Indigenous belonging. Focusing specifically on the settler colonial context, this chapter reveals or highlights the key dimensions for thinking about how cities are Indigenous places. The way cities are knitted together into structures of settler colonial domination and their vital importance for all our futures. Libby starts her chapter with an acknowledgement. 
She acknowledges the peoples and the lands upon which she writes her chapter and where she lives, and she also pays respects to their ancestors and elders. This acknowledgement is a practice of law in the place that Libby lives, and that's why she's making that statement here. As a practice, it invites us to consider more deeply what it means to say that cities are Indigenous places, and that's what Libby is focusing on in this chapter. And that's why she's doing this acknowledgement up front. So let's just unpack a little more what Libby means when she uses the phrase Indigenous cities. The term isn't intended as a claim about a specific form of indigenous urbanisation. And it's not to claim that indigenous urbanism actually exists or it can be known by researchers like Libby and I. As you'll read in this chapter, if we made a claim like this, if we made a claim about indigenous urbanism, that would involve a form of cultural appropriation and we certainly do not want to do that. In fact, Libby goes to great lengths to show that it's highly problematic for white people to claim to know what indigeneity is because this claim would be based on white settler society's terms of reference and position of advantage. This is another way of saying, as a white person, you could never know what it's like to be indigenous. And this is perhaps most clearly stated when Libby says, and I'll quote her here, While I can't, as a non-Indigenous scholar, fully unpick myself from the inclinations of white privilege, I open them here for consideration in a spirit of fostering a decolonizing ethic towards scholarly practice. So the objective of this chapter is really to open up a debate about the settler city, about white privilege, and about decolonizing the built environment professions. This is what Indigenous cities means. The phrase is intended as a prompt to probe more accurately into the origins and structures of urban life in settler societies like Australia. And this is important, as I mentioned before, because the historical origins of thousands of cities around the world lie in the appropriation of Indigenous lands, the banishment of Indigenous bodies, and the marginalisation of Indigenous peoples from urban life. And yet, Much of our urban scholarship comes from these countries and cities. And Libby is calling this blind spot out. She says that cities like New York, Vancouver, Sydney are often the focus of urban theory, but they're positioned as if they began at the moment of colonisation. I sometimes open classes or um, you know talks or whatever with you know who thinks of Melbourne if I'm in Melbourne as a as a colonial city. No one ever does because it was a colonial city once, but it's not anymore. Um, so then that begs the question: How is it not a colonial city anymore? What made it not a colonial city? What pushed us beyond that or past it or post it or whatever? Um, and and that's usually when the room falls silent because we can't find a way to say how it's past because it's not. Um, it's still a colonial city and we need to kind of grapple with that. So the, the, the sort of trickery, the cleverness of the settler colonial condition is to render settlement um, perfectly normal and not to be commented on anymore um, as just a thing that's kind of unfolding um, on the landscape. The urban texts and urban books about these cities almost never discuss the continuing dynamic of colonisation as a force in contemporary urban life. 
So colonization is not just an event from the past, but a process that continues in the present and is built into the built environment professions. So thinking about the city as an indigenous place offers a more truthful and accurate account of what the city actually is, how the cities came to be, and what we might think of as the urban. At the same time, thinking about the city as an indigenous place also reveals how mainstream ways of thinking about and understanding urbanisation have consistently worked to erase indigenous peoples from history and contemporary urban life. So this is the key takeaway from this chapter that cities like Sydney are indigenous places, but this history has been written out of urban studies. And Libby wants us to address this huge blind spot. And we all have a role to play in correcting this blind spot in the built environment professions. The concept of indigeneity is itself a largely contested term and one that's defied a globally accepted definition. But there are some accepted characteristics that have been asserted by Indigenous peoples as being fundamental to the concept of indigeneity. And perhaps the most important of these is the right of Indigenous people themselves to assert their own definition of Indigenous people, communities and nations. This right is enshrined in the United Nations Declarations of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And there's some other important dimensions of the concept too, like Indigenous peoples are distinct peoples with special attachments to traditional lands based upon unique laws and customs that are often place-based. Using these types of criteria, the United Nations says there's about 370 million Indigenous people globally in about 90 countries. In the chapter, Louis says this is less than 5% of the world's population, a population that disproportionately experiences discrimination, marginalisation, poverty, displacement and ethnic cleansing. And of the world's more than 7,000 languages, more than 4,000 are Indigenous languages and some of these are the most threatened languages in the world. These dimensions mean that Indigenous peoples are situated in a particular way in relation to the nation, state and city, and in relation to other social groups too. So there's something universal to the idea of indigeneity. Indigenous peoples have universally experienced dispossession and domination through colonisation, and their ways of life, their forms of knowledge, their ways of governing themselves, their distinctive laws and customs, they've all been seriously threatened by dominant cultures. But there's some things that are not so universal to the idea of indigeneity too, and the concept has been criticised for being a catch-all term that flattens the highly distinctive and varied ways of Indigenous life. So it's important to understand that the very concept and category of indigeneity comes from the colonial experience itself. And this creates a tension for some Indigenous people because they're being identified by a category that was born out of colonial violence. (music) 
And this is the second big takeaway from this chapter, the need to recognise the intrinsic link between the concept of indigeneity and colonisation. And to take seriously the need to think about the colonial process as a process, as a structure and as a relation of power. We'll talk more about this in episode three on economic cities, but to understand the relationship between indigeneity and urbanization, you need to understand how different colonial processes shaped this relationship. Libby talks about two different types of colony. The first is what we might call extractive colonies, such as the British in India or the French in Africa. And the second is what we might call settler societies or settler colonies like Australia. In both cases, the colonial power, like the British Empire or the British East India Company, makes a claim to a piece of territory in a foreign land. And in both cases, this often involves the violent dispossession of Indigenous people from the land. But what they do with the land and how they connect this new territory into the global colonial network is different in each case. In the extractive colonies, the colonial power moves a small number of people from the elite class, say from London, out into the colony. Their aim is to extract natural resources, agricultural products, and even human labour, in the form of slavery, to the benefit of London. In extractive colonies, the colonisers remain the minority and Indigenous peoples remain in the majority. In the settler colony, such as Australia or Canada, the colonial purpose and structure is radically different. The aim of the settler colony is to completely usurp land and recreate the imperial centre of, say, London in this new place. This requires the movement of many more people from the imperial centre to the newly colonised land. And the explicit aim is to replace the order of people who lived on the colonised land with a new social order, to literally replace their governance structures and to replace those people. This means, and this is important, in settler societies, the settlers specifically sought to dispossess Indigenous people of their land and to supplant Indigenous ways of life, governance and knowledge with their own ways of governing and their own knowledge systems. This was the explicit aim of setting up settler societies. And it means that the specific relation of domination between Indigenous and settler peoples is structured around land, law and sovereignty. The settlers came to stay in Australia and they came to replace Indigenous people. And we see this in the foundational myth of Terranalius, the legal fiction of the colonial power that the land belonged to no one. And this was perpetuated in order to enable and justify the imposition of Western legal, governance and property systems with no regard or recognition for the existing Indigenous systems of law, governance and spatial organisation that were already here and are still here. And this is the third big takeaway from this chapter. that in any discussion of the origins of modern cities in settler colonial context, you have to grapple with how land was stolen 
and the violent dispossession of Indigenous people, how this actually occurred. In order to take land, you have to take it. Like, you you, lit, you have to be on it. Um, you have to physically remove it from the order that was already here um, in order to make it yours. So if you think about it, just the density of, of, a, of a township developing and fences and road systems and a church in the middle of a, of a, of a green, you know, in the centre of an emerging little town like Sydney or, um, or somewhere like that, um, suddenly starts to take on a different meaning when you think about it through that lens of this is the way you take space, you literally take up the space. So the, the formation of building is part of the settler colonial condition because it actually gives it form and allows settlers, white invaders in, in the case that we're talking about um, here, to in fact take possession um, and to do the work of dispossession. And of course property is intrinsic to this as well. So we've heard that in settler societies, the settlers came to stay and they came to replace Indigenous peoples. This was the explicit aim of this type of colonisation. And they certainly dispossessed Indigenous people of the land and marginalised them through their legal and social systems. But here's the thing. Indigenous people are not disappearing. In fact, urban areas are very important for contemporary Indigenous life. There's a significant presence and diversity of Indigenous lives in contemporary cities around the world. The world's Indigenous population is increasingly urban, and in countries like Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the US and Norway, the majority of Indigenous people live in cities. So there's, a, of course, a really strong um, popular perception, popular as in non-Indigenous perception in Australia at least, um, and in many settler colonial countries, that um, Indigenous people are somewhere else and indeed somewhere else. You know, they belong to a time past and they're not here in the cities where it's perceived that everybody else is. Um, and a really good way of demonstrating this is the difference between uh, the areas of land um, across the Australian um, continent that have been returned under various forms of land rights, whether it be um, actual land rights regimes or as Indigenous protected areas or as native title settlements and and so on and so forth, more than 95% of which are in remote areas, far, far away from where the rest of the mainstream Australian population lives. And yet more than 70% um, of the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander population of Australia, as taken as a nation state, live in cities. And this is the fourth big takeaway from this chapter, that despite the urbanisation of many Indigenous peoples around the world, Indigenous peoples have largely been overlooked in urban studies. It's a strange irony. Libby notes some of the key examples where this is not the case. But in the main, the result of this silence in the urban theory is that cities have come to be thought of as places that don't have indigeneity. They are places that are absent of, inverted commas, real Indigenous people and are relevant to the demands of Indigenous rights. And so we come back to the city again as a site of Indigenous and settler colonial struggle. And remember, urban settlement, literally settling, has been central to the making of European settler colonial societies. This is because the process of settlement 
which is the very thing that settlers do as colonizers, is achieved through the built environment practices of mapping, surveying, and building cities. Or as Libby says, the establishment of towns and cities literally builds the settler colony. It is through the building of these cities that we dispossess Indigenous people of their land and we rewrite their governance and law. Planning as a discipline, my discipline and geography, um, is fully complicit in the colonial project. Um, in fact, is sort of central to it. It can't, you know, can't happen without it uh, because it's the form of governance that comes and is imposed on something that was obviously already here. So this is kind of obvious at one level. The built environment emerges and takes shape from the practices of settlers making their homes and their spaces for their new life. But at another level, when we recognise that these homes and urban spaces are made out of and on the lands of Indigenous people that were already a part of a dense social, cultural and political fabric, then the process of settlers making a home on the frontier no longer looks so innocent. And it's in this way that we can begin to see how the making of the urban landscape is in fact foundational to the structure and logic of settler colonialism. It is through the creation of the built form, and especially through urbanisation, that we upsurp Indigenous people of their land and we literally settle on their space. And this is what we mean when we say the built environment professions in settler societies like Australia are not only implicated, but are central to the dispossession of Aboriginal people from their land, even today. And this brings us to our fifth big takeaway for this chapter, the relationship between land and property. In a settler colony, the land is of central concern, And that's because settlers come to stay and they come to replace. And that's why we say settler colonialism is a structure, not an event of the past. Settler colonists need to take possession of the lands for themselves to settle it. The urbanisation of Indigenous places through settler colonialism draws land into land and housing markets. And in the process, Indigenous land is reconstituted as settler property. So the establishment of towns and cities not only turns indigenous land into settler property, but it also constructs the racist imaginary that indigenous people in cities are somehow no longer authentically indigenous. A strange irony. With challenging this in mind, Libby ends her chapter with a challenge for all of us which is an attempt to grapple with the complexities of the contemporary settler society city. And it's a call for an examination of the underlying conditions of Indigenous cities. The sad reality in a place like Australia is that Aboriginal people do not own large parts of the country. Their land has been stolen, they are not granted sovereign rights, and the built environment professions were central to this. 